So recently I've been studying for the GRE, which for those of you who don't know is called the Graduate Requisite Exam. And it's this four-hour test that many people have to take in order to get into graduate school. It's kind of the, the first step that you take to get to grad school. And one of the most effective ways from the time that I've been studying for this to um, measure your progress is to take something called a practice test. And so, in fact, all of the major study books that I've picked up in Barnes & Noble or various places have had four to six practice tests and even an additional CD with four or six more practice tests that you can take so that the student can examine their knowledge and find areas in their knowledge where they're lacking some information and content and need to improve upon. And when you step back and think about it, this idea of testing is a normal part of our lives, right? And something that we often take for granted. Um, if you think about um, just the tests that we subject ourselves to, we think about academic tests or medical tests or even just some sort of professional performance test. For instance, if you want to drive a vehicle, you take a written test as well as a driving test as well as an eye exam to make sure that you're ready to drive and to be a, a licensed driver. If you want to be a lawyer, you have to pass the bar exam and so on and so forth. There's so many of these tests that we subject ourselves to. Then on from there, there's these personal tests. Um, that none of us can avoid in life. Tests like illness, which I just went through last night, or tests like broken dreams, or peer pressure, failures in our life, suffering, financial pressures, and even moral temptation. All of those tests are things that confront us whether we like it or not. And tonight we're going to be talking about um, this idea of testing ourselves, which I've um, entitled Kicking Your Own Butt, The Duty of Reflection. It's important for us Christians to um, kick ourselves in the butt every now and then and make sure that we are where we need to be and, and spend some time reflecting. Um, we see this in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6, where we are called to voluntarily test ourselves and to search our own hearts. There Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. We see here that Paul urges them to take spiritual inventory of their lives and to see whether they are in the faith. If you look carefully at verse 5, the word yourself appears three different times. And Paul puts it there for emphasis. But it's not just merely an emphasis in repetition. It's an emphasis in changing the grammatical structure of that language to a, a not-so-normal order. Um, the way that the sentence reads in Greek is literally, you yourselves test, you yourselves examine, you yourselves recognize to see if Jesus Christ is in you. And so Paul there is putting the emphasis on each one of us as individuals, examining ourselves to see whether Jesus, in reality, lives inside of us. Look at how the New Living Translation paraphrases these words, especially in verse 5. It says, examine yourselves to see whether your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So I hope that, like the Corinthians, we know that there are sinful attitudes or sinful behaviors in our life. Previously in chapter 12, um, which we'll kind of put that on the board, um, Paul has talked about them and confronted them about their spiritual patterns and behaviors and attitudes that are going on in the church there in verse 20. And then in verse 21, he talks about individual sins that are going on there. It says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over the many of those who, sin, who sinned earlier and have not re repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. We see here that the presence of any of these things in their lives should cause one to question themselves and ask, are they living like a true Christian, or are they a true Christian? And that's the literal meaning of the phrase at the end of verse 5 and 6 where Paul says, Indeed, you failed to meet the test, or we have not failed the test. The idea of that little phrase, fail the test, means to be counterfeit, 
or to be proved to be inauthentic. And so we must ask ourselves, am I truly born again? Am I a member of God's spiritual family? Or in terms of this counterfeit issue, am I just putting up a front? Or has there been no spiritual transformation in my life? The very fact that Paul asks this question to the Corinthians shows what is a mark of true Christianity. It's whether Christ is in reality living in us and changing our lives. Paul doesn't ask how faithful we are in church attendance or how well we offer prayers at mealtime tables. He doesn't ask us how much Bible knowledge we have. Rather, he asks the most fundamental of questions. He says, are we standing with a faith that places Jesus Christ at the absolute center of our lives? And let me say that one more time. Are we standing with a faith that places Jesus Christ at the absolute center of our lives? But the hard part about this self-examination that Paul calls them to is that in self-examination, we often develop these coping strategies where we build up these um, cognitive defenses so that we continue to live our lives and beliefs and just continue to go on with the lifestyle that we have accepted. Let me insert an example from my own life. Um, this is something that I used to do a lot of, but I've kind of been broken of it recently. Have you ever gone shopping at a discount store? Or shopping any store, really, and you, you get in this hurry, and you just grab something that has your size on there, and you say, you know, especially for guys, I'm a guy, I know my size, I'm just going to run home and, and put this on. So you get home, and especially with a pair of jeans, you put it on, and you think, ooh, this is a little tight. Right? And you, you button that, and the button works, but the button is scared for its life. I mean, it's hanging on for dear life, right? But what's funny is the things that happen in our mind while this is going on, right? I guarantee you this is not what you're thinking. You're probably not thinking, well, you know, maybe I have gained a little bit of weight. Or you don't think, you know, I haven't been eating right these last couple days. Maybe that's just what's going on. No, instead you think, well, you get what you pay for. You know, I bought this on the discount rack, and I bet you the manufacturer didn't really check to see whether it was the actual circumference of my waist here. And how many of you have had something similar in your life happen, right? Is it just guys? or is it, I see some women shaking their heads too. So it's something we can all identify with. And while this self-deception doesn't really amount to anything, it doesn't really ultimately matter when it comes to these trivial things, but it really does matter when we think, when we think about this in a spiritual context, in the spiritual realm of self-deception. I mean, we don't want to outright live like hypocrites, right? So we just decide to deceive ourselves a little bit slowly because we don't want to hurt our sense of being sincere, so we just continue to deceive ourselves. And we see this often happens with people who want to retain a sense of genuinely being a part of God's family or being in the Christian faith, of being a genuine disciple. These are the most likely to fall into this self-deception spiritually. A.W. Tozer pointedly states, Of all the forms of deception, self-deception is the most deadly. And of all the deceived persons, the self-deceived are the least likely to discover the fraud. The reason for this is simple. When a man is deceived by another, he is deceived against his will. He is contending against an adversary and is temporarily the victim of another's guile. Since he expects his foe to take advantage of him, he is watchful and quick to suspect the trickery. Under such circumstances, it is possible to be deceived, sometimes and for a short while. But because the victim is resisting, he may break out of the trap and escape before too long. But with the self-deceived, it is quite different. He is his own enemy and is working a fraud upon himself. He wants to believe the lie and is psychologically conditioned to do so. He does not resist the deceit, but collaborates with it against himself. There is no struggle because the victim surrenders before the fight even begins. He enjoys being deceived. The farther we push into the sanctuary, the greater becomes the danger of self-deception. The deeply religious man is far more vulnerable than the easygoing fellow who takes his religion lightly. The latter may be deceived, but he is not likely to be self-deceived. Isn't that so convicting? 
It's so easy to deceive ourselves, especially spiritually when there's so much motivation behind this examining or misexamining ourselves, rather. Um, cognitive psychology has been able to show how deception is an intelligible subject. It's something that we can discern how it happens. And through giving an account of the techniques of thinking and judging, we are used to, to bring about the situation. We do not fall into deception as we would think, um, you know, over just a quick step. It's all these tiny little steps that bring us into being self-deceived about our situation. We slip into the self-deception by the tiny steps, and each one is so small that we, in a sense, can ignore it or completely, you know, not even notice that it's happening or excuse it. We creep up on ourselves gradually and thus enable the story to evolve so slowly that we can justify not seeing this deception happening. And so these techniques I kind of want to realize really quickly and to think about. Um, these are something that I read in um, some sort of scientific journal um, that I think is important for us, and we'll take a look at some of them in a spiritual sense. Um, so thinking through deception, the first thing that we think about is something called screening. And um, this is I, the idea that um, we select from all of the information available to us that which is consistent with the beliefs that we have about or that we would like to have about ourselves. And so we fail to hear the discordant notes, right? We'd like to screen through and filter through what we see so that we're only finding the things that matter to us. The second thing this journal article references is something called weighted evidence. We give greater weight to the evidence which supports what we want to believe about ourselves, and we discount the evidence which points in the other direction. Evidence that supports our self-interest is deemed as logical and compelling. The third idea that this author brings through is confirmation. Our attention is quickly drawn to the little bits of evidence which confirm us in our false beliefs. Events which confirm us become significant and are remembered, whilst those that don't uh, are disconformed to that event are quickly forgotten and regarded as insignificant. The, third th- the fourth thing is gradualism. This idea that we don't take too big a steps at once because then it'd be too hard to deny. And so we just eat the elephant a bite at a time, right? The next thing is the refusal to review new evidence. We do not subject our preferred beliefs to periodic review in order to update them and thus face the fact that we could possibly be invalidated by those those things. And the last thing is that we make these things habits. These tricks in thinking and judging ourselves become habitual with us so that we gradually lose every skill of self-critical knowledge. We become habituated in patterns of thought which contribute to and maintain us in our self-deception. And spiritually, as I alluded to earlier, we see these techniques of deception all of the time within us and in other people. So test yourselves as we go through a couple of these areas that especially I see in my heart so often to see whether you are making these same mistakes and enjoying deception. So the first thing is is that we rest on success, or that we're resting on success. You can see this so clearly in the history of the Israelites where the success, not the failures in their lives, are the most pressing dangers they face. Or to put it another way, Generally, it's not our weaknesses that get us in trouble, but our delusions of strength. When we experience even a little bit of success, it brings us into this point of complacency. And we stop asking questions about our character as long as we feel that we're successful people. We deceive ourselves into thinking that who we are on our best day represents our true character, instead of taking a look at ourselves at large. One of the ways that we see this, I think, is getting focused, or when we become focused, on religious activity. Right? Being in church... Being with people who call themselves Christians, reading Christian literature, or talking about God, feeling spiritual, even being a part of a Bible study is placed over the quality of time that you spend with others or the amount of spirituality that's actually occurring. This lulls people into the deception of thinking that they're saved or thinking that they're better off than they actually are. And we see this so often, right? A group of Christians gets together to hang out, 
but no one shares what's going on in their life. No one comments about what they need help with in their life. No one shares any serious conversation. They just feel good about being with other Christians. Or you see a Christian that does a good deed, and they're quick to post it on social media or to, to share that with others, and they pat their back to tell other people what they did. But they don't really try hard to step up and do something helpful or to, to do anything that they're, for the individual that they're serving. They just want to make it known to themselves and to other people that what they're doing is a good deed and that they were there. This attitude reminds me so much of something that's in the Bible. Um, and it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Look at what it said in Acts 5. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with it, or with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of, the, a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Let's notice a couple of things about this passage here. First, Ananias and Sapphira did not have to sell anything. Right? This was not a requirement. There's nothing that wrong with owning property or keeping it. Um, secondly, they didn't have to give all of the money from the sale. They could have just simply said that they were only giving part of the money, or they could have sold the property and given none of it to the church. Or there would have been nothing wrong with even telling the apostles that they spent a little bit of money for their own bills, but then gave the rest to the church, right? That would have been something still nice to do. So we have to ask ourselves, why did they lie about selling this land? Why did they say they were giving all of the money from the sale, when in reality they were only giving part of the money to the work of the Lord? It seems apparent that they were not concerned with giving to God, as much as they were concerned with trying to impress other people about themselves. They were using the sale to try to appear more spiritual, and they were playing the game of spirituality. You can imagine what happened. At the previous worship service in Acts 4, Barnabas comes forward and sells his piece of land and, and gives that, and so many people are talking about what a generous man Barnabas was and how great he was, and Ananias and Sapphira start looking at each other and thinking, well, we want people to talk like us about that, or we want to, to look good and seem as if we're good people to everybody else. And they get more concerned with their appearance and their reputation than, with they, than their character at their heart. Kent Hughes um, speaks with absolute clarity on this subject, and I think this quote is really important. It says, We must be absolutely clear as to what Ananias' sin was. It was not just casual deception. But rather, he feigned a deeper spiritual commitment than he had. We share Ananias' sin not when others think of us as more spiritual than we are, but when we try to make others think we are more spiritual than we are. Examples of Ananias' sin today include creating the impression that we are people of prayer when we are not, making it look like we have it all together when we don't, promoting the idea that we are generous when we are so tight we squeak when we smile, or misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness. When a preacher urges his people towards deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example, when in actuality he knows it is not, he is repeating Ananias' sin. When an evangelist calls people to holy living but is secretly having an affair with his secretary, he is an Ananias. This gives us a lot to think about if we dare. If we rest on our success, even to the point of being dishonest about the ways in which we're being successful, or the, the levels of success that we've attained, we are setting ourselves up for spiritual deception. And another technique that Christians often use is this idea of redirecting our attention. This is where our compartmentalizing tendencies come into play here. Um, we redefine the fight by changing the arena that we're playing in, right? Our families press us about how we need to spend more time with the kids, or we need to devote more time to our marriage, and yet we point to our lives, our work lives at least, to justify our absence at home. If we're failing at work, then we point to the struggles that we're having at home as to why we're not doing well in work. 
And if we get a little success in one area, we use it to excuse ourselves in another area of our lives. And when we use this tactic, we often forget that if our character's rotten, it will show up in every aspect of our lives. It's not something that's just contained to one area. And when we think about it, how easy is it for us to, instead of, to make excuses for our sin, instead of admitting it and dealing with it and trying to fix it, it is easy for us to blame everyone else, right? Some examples that I wrote down was, is that we aren't happy with our spouse because they are unresponsive. Or we aren't fulfilled with our job because our boss is a jerk. We get angry because someone makes us angry or pushes our buttons. We worry because we've had bad things that happened to us in the past. We are dysfunctional because our parents were too fill-in-the-blank, you know, over-controlling or strict, lenient, indifferent, things like that. Or we spend too much money because we just want to have what everybody else has. We make excuses so easily in our lives instead of facing up to our sins. And we will never be what God created us to be until we stop making excuses and take responsibility for our own lives. We choose the way we respond to the circumstances of life. We choose to respond in sinful or godly ways. We choose whether to trust or to fret. We choose how we respond to people who push our buttons. And if we're going to truly follow Christ, we must admit our sins and stop making excuses and stop redirecting our attention. So the third thing I think about is we retain the wrong team. Some of us, or I guess the idea here is um, that we surround ourselves with people who don't help us spiritually. Some of us are oblivious to the fact that we're not fighting the right fight, right? We surround ourselves with people who are more concerned with success, more concerned with having a fun life, you know, doing things that make us happy instead of becoming better people. Many of us have fans and not friends, and it shows up in our life through our lack of character growth or through lack of spiritual growth especially. Our friends either help us mature or they don't help us mature. It's that simple. And so my question for you tonight is, do your friends currently challenge your faith? Just recently, somebody said to me um, that I don't think that I'm going to go to heaven, or I'm not sure whether I'm going to heaven. And when we think about our immediate response to that, you think it's so easy to, to say, well, sure, you're going to heaven. You know, you're, you're here at church, you know, you pray at church, things like that. I mean, you own a Bible, it's an ESV study Bible. I mean, come on, they go to heaven, right? You know, and th- th- we just think that we try to coddle people. We get so caught up in grace and making somebody feel better that we forget to challenge them, or we forget that maybe if they're having doubts about their faith, maybe there's a good reason why they're having doubts about their faith, and that we should challenge them on those things, and wait to see whether they have evidence in their lives to suggest that unnecessary doubt, right? But that's not popular today. And if you think about the way that Paul talked about that to the Corinthians, about testing themselves, don't forget the time scale of this letter, By the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he's already written three other letters to them. One that we have in Scripture, 1 Corinthians, and then two more that come kind of before and after 1 Corinthians. And this church has heard so much from Paul over all these years. And by the time you come to chapter 13 in 2 Corinthians, you've got a total of 29 chapters that the Spirit has um, brought forth and placed in Scripture. And he says to them, after all this time, test yourselves whether you were in the faith. Examine yourself. Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to just say, well, I know you guys, you know, I've known you guys for so long, I know you guys are okay. But no, he urges them to test themselves after all this time. After years of ministry under Apostle Paul, and after he sent all of these missionaries to them to send them his words as well, he still wants them to go back to the very beginning and examine themselves again and again and again to make sure that they are in the faith. They're not deceiving themselves. So do you have friends that have been in your life for so long that they still test your, your faith? I believe that the scripture teaches that this should happen in our lives. Not only in the church, where we do this every Sunday, where we examine ourselves when we come before the Lord's Supper. But we should have friends that ask us to examine ourselves and make sure that we're living right. So before we leave, 
Um, let's take a quick look at what Paul says to help us in conducting self-examination of our, of our faith. This idea of biblical reflection, um, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 13, I don't have it up on the board, or 2 Corinthians 13, excuse me. This idea in verse 5, he says three words that I think show us different shades of examination. The first is objective evaluation, right? This idea of testing. So in verse 5, it says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's the first word. To test yourselves. So this, this word test means to make an objective evaluation like I have on the board. And so that's pretty simple, right? There doesn't mean much explanation. We just ask ourselves, have I really surrendered to him as the Lord of my life? Have I embraced the reality of his death and resurrection and the promise that in dying to sin, I am spiritually saved from my old life? Am I truly born again to a new life through baptism? And does my life look, life look any different now that I am baptized? This first idea is to make this objective evaluation, whether you are living a life that's right or you're living a life that's wrong. And the second word is closely related to it. It says that we're supposed to look for specific proof or examine, right? The, the other word for examine yourselves is in there. And again, this idea is looking for a specific proof. The Greek word here carries the idea of examining for the purpose of approving, right? But it's not necessarily about failing, but it doesn't mean that you can't find yourself lacking, right? If you think that you're living a Christian life and living it right, but then you go back and examine and look for this specific proof, maybe you find that you haven't been doing as well as you should. You know, sin lives in a costume, right? That's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order to do its evil work, it has to present itself as anything but evil, right? Impatient yelling wears the costume of a zeal for truth. Prevented lust masquerades itself as a love for beauty or love for your spouse. Gossip does its evil work by living in a costume of concern and of prayer, right? We see gossip so often in prayer requests for other people. We think about craving for power, which wears the mask of biblical leadership, right? So often whenever we um, see people wanting biblical leadership, we see also sometimes this craving for power or control. The fear of man gets dressed up as having a servant's heart, and the pride of always being right masquerades itself as loving the truth or loving biblical wisdom. Evil doesn't simply present itself as being evil, and that's part of the draw. And that's what I mean to examine and look for specific proof. Not only the things that you're doing, but the motivation behind what you're doing is a specific aspect of finding um, the true biblical reflection that God wants us to have. So as Christians, we look with optimism at God's redemptive activity in our lives, but sometimes we see ourselves falling short, and we need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves if Jesus is truly living inside of us. A couple examples of that are, do we have a deeper love for other Christians? Um, some of the things that I'm going to be talking about are from 1 John. Um, and in 1 John 3, verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So it's pretty simple, right? We can see whether we are actually examining ourselves, whether we love each other, right? Secondly, um, our thoughts and our habits. Excuse me. Yeah, our thoughts and our habits and our goals are focused on pleasing Jesus. Um, it's what the Bible refers to as this idea of practicing righteousness. In 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So when you look at your life, do you see that your thoughts, your attitudes, your goals are moving towards being more Christ-like or pleasing him more? Or do you not see that? And finally, we think about um, this idea of an increased ability to resist worldly influences. This is another thing that doesn't really need much explanation. If you think about in a marriage context, you can see that the stronger your marriage is, the less likely you will be to look at other people or to be tempted to seek other people. 
And the same is true for our relationship with God. The healthier it is, the less likely we will see, see ourselves looking for satisfaction from other people or other things in this life. The third thing about biblical reflection is to recognize or to develop self-awareness. This idea speaks of inner discernment. And we can live with increasing confidence with a sense that we know who we are in Christ because we continue to reevaluate ourselves and think about that. Again, let's look again at 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, But I trust that you realize that we ourselves do not fail a test. Notice that Paul includes himself in this process, in this discipline of spiritual self-examination. He turns the finger that he appointed at them, of having them examine themselves, and says, I'm examining myself as well, because the scriptures encourage us to examine ourselves. Again, very little is said about examining each other, and everyone, or everyone ought to occasionally ask ourselves, are we consistently living out our faith? Does our behavior exemplify what we say we believe? And do our lives really reflect that Christ lives in us? These are just a couple of things that I want us to think about tonight. Um, when we think about reviewing ourselves where we are right now, and maybe it's something that as you've thought about tonight, um, reviewing your own life and seeing where you are spiritually, you realize that you have been deceiving yourselves in certain areas. You may place the emphasis on parts of your life that make you look good, or you've redirected your attention to something else or made excuses for your sins and the tendencies that you see in your life, or you surround yourself with people that don't push you or don't help you evaluate your life. And so simply I ask you, are you kicking your own butt today? Are you working at developing this duty of reflection that no matter how much is going on in your life, you still try to examine yourself and make sure that your heart is where it needs to be? Um, a lot of times whenever we offer the invitation, we ask people to do that, specifically um, people who aren't Christians. Um, but tonight I want you to examine yourself whether you are a Christian or not a Christian to see whether you are having these tendencies of deceit in your own heart. And if you find that you are, maybe it's something that you need to take a seat for a moment and just pray to God that he can help you find these things or develop some accountability with other people in your life. Um, or maybe it's something that if you think that it's such a big sin or such a serious problem in your life that you need to come forward and ask for the help of other people here. I know that we all have um, these deceitful tendencies in our hearts and need help from each other. Um, whatever your name may be, I ask that you come forward now as we stand and sing.